0: Hello and welcome to HIP Biz. My name is Damien and in this series I explore how people have created a business they love, what success looks like to them and how they have found themselves along the way. To find out more, please visit our website at beyourbusiness.co.uk and I hope you enjoy the podcast. Today I'm with Hassan Gemai. Hassan is the owner of Lieben Coast uh, with his wife Senna. Hassan's had a fascinating life. Uh, he was born in Egypt. He moved to the UK in 1967. He then worked for the London Electricity Board. He then bought a squash club, started a restaurant, an import and export business, all in London and then he moved down to Hastings um, met his wife and started a restaurant and we're sat in your restaurant today which is a wonderful place which i had been admiring for some time um, because it looked very authentic and i was following you on social media and i love my food and um, unfortunately i tried to get to try some of your food a number of times but I think you had private functions, or you were, you were just too busy. But eventually, last week, I got to try your food, and it is fabulous. Um, the inspiration of the, the food and the restaurant is your wife, Senna, who is an amazing cook, and it's all come from, from her in that sense. But today, we're gonna talk about your life, and how you've, you've created what, what you have. Um, so, so we'll start at the beginning, Hassan. Yeah. Um, you were born in Egypt. Um, what, was, what was that like? Because <laughs> I've yeah, never been to it was Egypt.
1: A, well, absolutely superb. I mean, I was b- b- uh, born in Egypt, uh, mixed culture, because my dad was Egyptian from Alexandria and my mum was Italian, but born in Egypt. Uh, yeah, and we had a, a fabulous uh, childhood, I suppose. Uh, by the time we were five at home, because we had the two families, the two extended families living on in a big flat, uh, by the time we were five, we spoke f- we spoke four languages, including Italian and French and English and Arabic. And it was good fun. No social media, no mobiles. It was all, you know, using your leisure time, riding bikes, spending three months next to the seaside. Yeah, Does fabulous. it feel like a, a different world? Different world from nowadays, absolutely. But it was yeah. a happy childhood. Very happy childhood, yeah. yeah. Very warm memories. And I suppose, what happens, Daniel, you either have a happy childhood or you don't. We, we were very lucky, touch wood, to have two very loving parents and uh, a very multicultural childhood and a, and a nice childhood. Yeah. And how many siblings did you have? Oh, it was only me and my brother. I mean, okay. according to my mom, we, we would have been four boys, but she lost two, one at birth and one after birth, mm. so okay. just two of us, Yourself yeah, yeah. and Mohammed, Mohamed No. And
0: you told me before we started that your, I
1: think your mum was a fabulous cook. It was not just my mum, Danny, it was my mum and my Italian grandmother. And I used to watch them in awe in the kitchen because they had this big kitchen. We used to, they used to have a lot of, uh, I wouldn't say parties, but certain dinner parties. In Egypt, the, the structure tends to be that people go to each other's houses. Yeah. And they never invite one or two, they invite 15 or 20. So it's good. always, Yeah, it's always big. It sounds like a lot of fun. Oh, superb fun. And I used to watch my grandmother even making her own gnocchi. And, and really? I used to say, how does she do that? How does she flick them with a fork and and then boil them in water? Yeah. Have a nice tomato sauce and you've got a bit of parmesan and then you've got a superb dish in front of you.
0: Yeah. And then you had your mum creating Egyptian food.
1: Yes. It was always, always a mixture of Egyptian food and Italian food at the house. So. Yeah. So the Egyptian food a lot of lamb, things like the uh, okra, which we had on the menu last week. But the baby okra as opposed to the big Indian okra, really. Yeah. Uh, absolutely delicious lamb dishes. Yeah, very, very multicultural dishes. Yeah, so
0: obviously a big influence in your life early on was...
1: I suppose, uh, f- yeah, photographically a big, a big influence in your life because those images stay in your mind what you used to eat. And if, if you went to Egypt, I don't know if you have or you haven't, but when you go to dinner parties, um, especially when people, you know, are, you know, have a few bob, I suppose. There's not one dish on the table. There's probably eight, nine, ten different dishes on the table. And being very hospitable, people, the host, tend to push you to eat a bit of this and a bit of that, a bit of this, a bit of that. Yeah. And by the time you've f- you finished, you're absolutely stuffed to eat. <laughs>
0: Yeah. You can't see this on the podcast but I've got a massive grin on my face because just the sound of lots of people around the table e- eating, a, eating a feast is like my idea of heaven. Um, so from that background, what was it like coming from uh, Egypt in the 1960s?
1: Yeah, late 60s, 67, yeah.
0: What was it like coming from Egypt in the 1960s to the UK? What was that? Was that a bit of a culture
1: shock? It was a bit of a culture shock because like I told you, it I, it was by coincidence that I came in the UK because I wasn't well and I was three months in hospital in, in Switzerland. Then I came here and my brother said, why don't you finish your degree here? And I want I was insistent. I wanted to go back anyway. It is what it is. He found me a place at Hatfield Polytechnic, which is now Hertfordshire University. And I started my degree there, but it was a sandwich course. Uh, and even though my dad was financing me, I felt guilty. Uh, and I managed to delve, I was always delving. And I managed to get an apprenticeship with the London Electricity Board, and they paid all my fees. Yeah. So that was nice. I can't remember what I was earning at the time, probably £15 a week as an apprentice. Yeah. <laughs> but they paid my college fees and that. Yeah. So you were working with them in your sandwich year? I was working with them in my sandwich year. Uh, and and your, th- your degree was in um, electrical and electronic engineering. Yeah. Sorry, yeah. you were saying. Yeah, so, yeah, so w- one of the conditions of the apprenticeship was that when I finished, then I'd have to give them at least two years of my time, which was fair enough, really. Yeah. Uh, yeah, so I, I, I worked with them at the same time, as you said, did the year during the sandwich course of uh, working full time with them. Did a stint in France, which I liked for three months in a transformer company, because I I speak fluent French, that should, and I enjoyed that.
0: Yeah,
1: Yeah, and then I ended up, uh, when I graduated um, from Hatfield, I worked with them for, it ended up I worked with them for 10 or 11 years. Okay, it's quite a long time.
0: And what, what was it about engineering that attracted you in the
1: first place? The, the engineering bit, I suppose, came from my dad, who was a civil engineer, and uh, he came from a family of seven, but he... a very humble family, but he grew up in Egypt to become one of the biggest industrialists in Egypt. And I suppose his, his vision was that maybe, maybe one day, you know, when he passed away, I, I would take over his businesses in Egypt, really. Yeah. Sadly, that never happened, because in 59, uh, Nasser, which is quite well known to the West, nationalized all the businesses in Egypt. And more or less, everybody lost everything they had. They really the first thing he nationalized was the Suez Canal. Hence, when Eden attacked Egypt, probably not I don't know if you were born in. Spain. Well, I've seen the then, Crown, yeah, and then that, yeah. there's an episode where that happens, so I do know about yeah, that. Yeah, yeah. And Anthony Eden lost his job. Already. So France, Israel, and uh, the UK. Attack, attacked Egypt on the basis that he had no right to nationalize the Suez Canal. So that was a, an interesting part in history and it's an interesting part of my childhood. Because mm-hmm. I remember seeing out of our window, we lived on the fourth floor, the French MiGs flying low, yeah. uh, hitting all the uh, Egyptian airports and, and the Israeli uh, Air Force as well. So that was amazing. You'd hear the sirens and you'd see these jets go past your window.
0: Yeah, that's really interesting. I do find it fascinating when people tell me about parts of history that they've lived through, because for me, it's kind of, it's a a story, you know, that's happened in the past, but to you, that was a very real event.
1: Oh yeah, very real event and very vivid in your memory. You know, it it doesn't go away really. Yeah. But then uh, after that, obviously, uh, the case was lost about the canal going back to uh, to the west, as it were. And I don't know if you know the Suez Canal was was built by the French, so they had a bit of interest in it. Hence, them uh, going in uh, in an alliance with the UK and Israel to attack Egypt.
0: Okay,
1: Israel was really, I suppose, a silent partner. They saw Israel having a lot of knowledge about the Middle East because they had to, yeah. so they used them, you know, to. Uh, To attack Egypt on the basis that they knew a lot about the infrastructure, where all the airports were, etc., etc.
0: It's fascinating. So your father was a a big industrialist, so he was kind of the inspiration for you, um, starting doing your engineering degree.
1: Yeah, my dad was a great inspiration in in in, uh, becoming an engineer because I suppose deep deep down in his mind he thought that one day, you know, uh, I would actually take over the companies that he built from scratch. And at, at the time in, in 59, uh, NASA nationalized all the companies and uh, even the agricultural land. Nobody was allowed to own more than 50 acres. And uh, the catalyst in nationalization was Marshal Tito of Yugoslavia. Who, uh, who taught NASA that uh, you know the best best countries are the socialist countries right. where the state owns almost everything. but that was very premature and it was a period in Egypt where things went badly wrong. However, yeah. as, far, as far as an impact on us, uh, yeah they nationalized everything. and at the time my dad had lots of companies that he'd actually formed. Did he lose? Did he lose them? Yes, he lost everything, literally. I, I suppose uh, he lost the equivalent of what we would say now, about 300,000 UK sterling in 59, which would been a massive amount now. Yeah. I don't know what it would project as. What effect did that have on him? Um, strangely enough, uh, a lot of people had heart attacks, strokes, etc. But he, he was very philosophical and he said, well, if it's for the good of the country, then we just have to go with it. And he was about to sign a, a very big contract with a British company called EverReady that did uh, batteries. Yeah, I remember. Yeah, so he, he had vision. So he was about literally within weeks of nationalization was going to form a, a contract and a joint venture with EverReady to actually make dry cell batteries in Egypt. So he, he yeah he had a lot of vision in the future. Ah,
0: sounds like he was very um yeah, very noble in that in in what happened to him and it didn't it didn't knock him down too badly.
1: No, he was very noble and extremely intelligent. I suppose maybe maybe that that would have been a catalyst in me trying lots of different things in my life in in the UK really. What was that exactly, him being
0: so intelligent and, and...
1: I wouldn't say, I wouldn't, no, I wouldn't be so bold as to say intelligent. I, I would say searching, really, you know. Uh, yeah. Yeah. I, I did lots of businesses here, which I enjoyed every phase, I suppose. And it, it literally went in 10 year phases.
0: So you worked for the London Electricity Board for uh, 11, 11 to 12 years, I think you said. Yeah.
1: About about 10, 11 years.
0: Yeah. And you had a good time there and then what happened next? You.
1: What happened next is about two, three times a week, the way we kept fit, it was a gang of us, I suppose, uh, including a very good friend of mine, Gordon Emerson. I'd love to know what happened to him. Hopefully he's still going. But anyway, we used to play squash two, three times a week, and then we used to have, uh, we used to have a snack there, and I suppose the traditional way, have a few drinks, even though I wasn't a big drinker then, but there you were. And we spent some lovely nights there. And and it it actually, Daniel, it it stayed in my mind. I said, oh, maybe one day I could actually own this club. I'd love to own it and run it my way. It was owned by uh, a captain in the army, I remember very very distinctively, David Owen. And uh, he lived in Peasmarsh. But he would only come once every two, three weeks. And there was a, a little guy there that ran it, who was an ex-sergeant major in, in the army and he was running it for him.
0: Okay. It's interesting when you, and I noticed this when we were going through your background before we uh, started, how you mentioned people's names to, to me and I can see they're there, but you know, you can picture them immediately. Um, and what is, what is that about? Is that, do you, do you have a, I think you have a particular affinity with people?
1: Yeah, I mean, I, I love people, people fascinate me, whatever they are, whatever the background is, whatever the nationality is, they fascinate me and, you know, he, he, he was a strange character, uh, yeah, I, I wouldn't say I became good friends with him, <laughs> I, I, I always wanted to crack him down to see what was in the core, basically. So you're very interested in people. And yeah, that's, very much, yeah. That's,
0: yeah, that's, that's, I am too, actually. So yeah, that's, yeah, that's very um, interesting to hear you say that. Um, so you, so you bought the squash club?
1: Yes, I, I, I told him that I was interested in buying it. Um, and I told him that to a woman that worked for him, Maggie Aspinall, because uh, he, he never like he never liked to answer anybody, that guy, so Maggie Aspinall used to be at the time. She used to work at the club as assistant manager to uh, to the to the uh, army guy that ran it. And uh, she came back and said, "No, he's not interested." I said, "Okay, we'll just sell him if he is." Anyway, seven eight months later, he came back and he said he was interested in selling and we negotiated. W- little did he know that, really, I didn't, I didn't have a bean in my pocket. All I had was savings of about two grand. Um, yeah, so uh, what, what, I, what I did, I spoke to my mum. I said, I wonder if you could help me, being that you have connections in Switzerland. Can we go there together hmm. and see if we can borrow a sum of money, which is about half the value of what he wanted to sell it for? Uh, Did the business plan, sold the business plan to Lloyds Bank and they said well if you're putting in half We'll lend you the other half, but that half that I bought from Switzerland Was really not mine. It was repayable. So effectively I got a hundred percent loan. So it was a big a big risk
0: So have you always been somebody who Because you made that sound easy buying a squash club in London um, you know when you um, you just worked for a company before. You you did make that sound very easy. Does that come naturally to you, you know, just thinking, oh, I'd like to buy it, and and that's actually uh, a a possibility? Because some people, I think, they'd find that very, yeah, very
1: difficult. I suppose, yeah, you would find it daunting, but to me, it, it, it wasn't daunting, it was a challenge, if you like. It was something that I had set my eyes on, and I thought, if I own it, I'd run it in a completely different way. Yeah. Uh, and I loved the sport, I loved squash at the time. I was a very mediocre squash player, so yeah. I wasn't. But Egyptians are good squash players. Yeah. Yeah, no, it, it wasn't easy, but, you know, it, it was a challenge and I managed to achieve it. Yeah. I managed to buy the freehold of the building and the company that ran it. And yeah, I spent 10, 11 years doing that yeah
0: and i guess again by being around your dad and seeing what he did that made it because my dad's kind of an entrepreneur as well and he just does things so it's made it a lot easier for me to just start start a business or sell a business because i've seen it happen like it's a very normal thing
1: yeah i think i think uh, there's a lot of uh, you know you have to be spontaneous a lot of spontaneity about it Mm. Uh, if you take me and my brother with two very different machines, he's he's been in the corporate world and superbly successful in the hotel business and catering business, hotel and uh, catering management. Uh, whereas I really have spent most of my life going into ventures that either I have started or have started with other people. You yeah. know. So the food venture, you know, will come to that. You know, I built a restaurant in the club uh, from out of an office, which was sitting there doing nothing. And and that became quite a little successful profit center for the club as a whole. So you saw an opportunity
0: with some space which wasn't being utilized in the the building?
1: Yeah, absolutely. I was sitting there one, one Sunday afternoon, just deep in thought in the office. And I thought, what am I doing with this office area? I mean, the paperwork wasn't that difficult at the time. Yeah. Uh, I even in those days, I bought my own little apricot computer, which in in those days I paid two and a half grand for. Wow. And and I had done an Excel sheet to actually do the bookings and the memberships that. And uh, I remember I developed a little membership system with another engineer. And then I was quite, I was actually quite thrilled when I sold it to another club and yet really I wasn't a software engineer. Yeah. I didn't have a hand in, in actually building that programme, I actually built it with somebody else. And what was that feeling of being thrilled? Oh, amazing really, yeah. yeah. You get such a kick and trust me, you must know, it's, it's not always the money, it's actually the achievement.
0: It's it's mainly the achievement really, yeah, the money's nice though. The money's nice, of course (laughs) it's nice. So tell me me about the restaurant, so you built that. um, I I, I built that. With a a couple of
1: guys. Yeah, I I built that with a plumber, a carpenter, I did the electrics myself and a decorator came and finished it and it was nice. Uh, we, we called it at the time she Babushka. Babushka was a, a song, uh, I don't know if you remember, by, by, by K no, by Kate. Oh, Kate Moss. Kate, no, no, no Kate, Kate Moss. Moss. Kate, Kate, Bush. Kate Bush. Kate Bush. Exactly, exactly. Another yeah. type of vegetation. Yeah, Babushka is grandmother in Russian. I don't know why I called her that, yeah. but anyway, yeah, that, that was successful. I had a little uh, electrical lift that took the food from the second floor to the bar area on the first floor, and I could see it about, maybe 25-30 people at the push okay. and I had very much an open plan kitchen like we have here yeah and
0: you so you told me before we started that you actually got um, a friend of yours or um, somebody you knew called Habibi who trained you up as a
1: commercial chef yeah Habibi, so Habibi was uh, his real name was Abdul Hamid Mahdi so it's too long Habibi Means, I, I suppose, uh, yeah, it, the loved one really, because he he was a huge character and he was loved by everybody. That guy, and yet in the kitchen he was a wild machine, you know. Yeah. <laughs> one day he even took a took a kit, huge kitchen knife and sweated a, a KP. <laughs> when wow. He was going out of you know he was out of order, but in those days. Sounds know, it's fiery. Not, yeah, it's not like not like these days. You know, everything is done to the rule book. Yeah, anyway, what, a, what we, a nice name as well, yeah, the, the loved we, One. Yeah, the Loved One, yeah. So he taught me commercial cooking. He didn't want any money from me because he worked, uh, he worked for my brother indirectly at the Royal Lancaster. My brother was a uh, banqueting manager then at the Royal Lancaster, I think. Yeah. He was GM, I can't remember. Anyway, he, he taught me um, Middle Eastern cooking, but done the commercial way. But we extended the menu. We used to do lots of steaks, uh, calf's liver. We even introduced hummus and pita bread there. I mean, I'll I'll email you the the menu. I've still got it in my garage. Yeah, it'd be nice. it It was amazing. I mean, we used to sell the hummus and pita bread, and that was what, in 1981, 82? For about £1.80, I mean, that's was one pounds eighty, it's very popular about, in the UK now.
0: That yeah, the Middle Eastern cuisine, but now hummus, but back Then
1: probably not. No, hummus wasn't popular then. I did hummus and pita bread, tarama salata and pita bread. Uh, we did steaks. I had a charcoal grill, which I chose, which worked with lava rock. So, as yeah. the as the fat melted, etc., it actually smoked, made even the food more smoky wow so we did it's things like sirloin, steaks calf's liver done yeah. with butter and sage
0: uh, and what was yeah. it like to come kind of full circle in a way and we spoke about the cooking of your your mum and your and your grandmother and 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 go back into have that back in your life
1: yeah it, it was good i mean you know it, I, I felt i suppose you get an adrenaline rush you know you cook with passion and people love the food and the more they love the food the more i wanted to diversify in the food and everything we did at the club nothing, yeah. nothing was done you know on a 10-year plan or that it, most things that i've done in my life have come from thinking it out to suddenly say okay i'm gonna do it and, and what is that
0: you it. follow when you're doing that is it is it kind Bad of is it yeah like I, I thought it yeah. might be yeah, yeah so it's your gut feeling you yeah, just my gut feeling and, and how what does that feel like
1: <laughs> how yeah, How do
0: you like... you know because it's, it's a funny thing isn't it
1: it is a funny thing but i suppose a lot of people do that and I'm, I'm sure i'm not the only one but it just really you have to have the courage of your convictions to get up and do it so you feel something <laughs> and
0: yeah that, that sounds, that's, yeah, that feels, even, that feels even good. Even when you
1: come to this restaurant that we're sitting in, in St. Leonard's, in, in, in a strange part of St. Leonard's, I mean, when we started it, and we'll come to it, uh, we started it full on when Covid was on. And uh, my wife, lots of my friends, my brother said I was totally mad even thinking of opening a restaurant uh, when there was such a huge pandemic going on. Yeah. It felt right. It felt right. It felt, like I can't lose what we had achieved at the Kino Theatre. Yeah. And
0: so there's something that, that happened before you got into food
1: again, um, so... Yeah, very much so. I mean, then in, in, in the very late 80s, I actually sold the Squash Club. And it still has the letters of our name, West London Squash Club in Devonport Old Shepherd's Bush. But the people that ended up buying it were the orange people. The orange people are the gurus in India uh, who teach spirituality and, uh, you know, meditation, etc. And now it, it's, it's nice because it's a bit like, uh, you know, having a piece of your life that's still there because the initials of the club are there, they never remove them. And yet when you go in, it's, it's an Indian temple.
0: Yeah. <laughs> that's, that's an Indian temple. Wow, and it's still got the. That is nice, isn't it? Yeah, and, yeah. yeah. If you ever
1: go to Shepherd's Bush and go to Devonport Road, which is not far from QPR Loftus Road, it, okay. it's in Devonport Road. You'll see the initials WLSC. And
0: I understand exactly what you're saying when you say that's a nice feeling because I've got that feeling from having sold sold my business. Yeah, and seeing it still operating and actually going, being able to go and get a pizza from it, Um it just makes me so happy.
1: Yeah, I'm sure it gives you a lot of gratification, doesn't it? It,
0: it does. It does. Yeah. It, it makes me proud. You know. Yeah, yeah. That it, that it's something that I could pass on. Was yeah. it the same thing for you?
1: Yeah, I suppose it is. And uh now maybe not so much at, at my age, but. Uh, yeah, yeah, because I'm 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 in my early seventies now. Oh yeah, don't look yeah, at it. Yeah, 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 I'm in my early seventies. I'm seventy three this year, so yeah. Very oh, well, wow. congratulations. Yeah, but you know, I, I, I still have the energy and I, c- I, I cannot dream just sitting in the lounge watching T V or just having walks and doing nothing. Else. Yeah, no, I can see that about it's you, Hassan. It's not me,
0: you know. No, it's not you, is it? No. You're somebody who does things. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. Um, so then, take us take us on to the to the next stage in your life, which I think was an import and export business.
1: Yes, yeah, so I sold the club, and uh, you know I was humming and humming and I thought, what what do I do next? You know, I've, I've got some money in the bank, and I can't just leave it there. I've got to invest it. So, in those days, you could literally phone the bank manager or the Nationwide and get a loan, and that's exactly what I did. I. I bought two small properties, one in a muse in in Shepherd's Bush, Goldhook Muse Mm -hmm. and uh, I remember I put a deposit of about 40 grand, I bought it for 92 or 94, Uh, number one Goldhook Muse and I bought a little new townhouse in Chiswick, again with with a mortgage and I thought well, you know, I can live there. And then the next step was, what do I do? So owning one Goldtok Muse, albeit with a mortgage, I created an office there. But for the first two, three months, I never knew what I'd do there. Mm -hmm. And then suddenly I went to an exhibition. And so these toning tables from Phoenix, Arizona, and toning tables are a, a set of, if you like, exercise machines exercise your body passively okay. and by doing that by you know by by having repetitious movements on your muscles you actually get tonality of the muscles and your body is recontoured. so I sold exactly how they sold it in America they sold it as a toning table salon uh, for women to go and exercise and lose inches of their body And if you look on Google, our name was Inch by Inch. You'll still find Inch by Inch. Okay. Uh, Yeah, so... So you've got another legacy there. Yeah, so... Yeah, it it was an amazing business. I mean, one year, I think it was 1993 or 94, just before the recession hit in 94, it was just me and another woman I employed, Jan Howell, who used to live in Winchester. Uh, She worked with me on sales and uh, in 92, I think it was, or 93, we sold something like a million pounds of of, uh, toning table salons, you know, under the flagship of inch by inch. Oh, my word. That's that's pretty good. Yeah, it was good. Again, it was exciting. Each salon, the equipment we sold on average was 20 grand and we used to get financing for people. Yeah. And it was a, it was literally sold as a business opportunity. I can't say a franchise because a franchise you need to be running it for three four years before you sell the model. Yeah. But th- this one we sold it as a business opportunity. They owned the name. Yeah. You know, we gave them training. We gave them the paperwork. They bought the equipment. I love it. Yeah. So you
0: just started a completely different business. Yeah. Yeah.
1: Importing
0: these toning these toning machines and selling them on to people as a way of starting their own business.
1: Correct. And it was a set of seven, and with it, they got uh, also a massage table, which eventually, after that, when the toning table uh, business trailed off, um, I always said to myself, I wonder if there's anybody has ever manufactured a massage chair. Yeah. Um, That came my my second phase in my life, being in the leisure market. Right. Okay. Yeah, I've seen. I think I tried one of those. So yeah. Did you
0: end up selling those as well?
1: Well, not only selling it, I became the sole distributor for a Japanese company called Inada, and uh, I started doing exhibitions, and we're doing about twenty, thirty exhibitions a year. Okay. Yeah. So wow. That that was that was an amazing phase of my life because that that is really something that I, I'm very proud of because it was a completely new um, industry that started a business opportunity yeah. selling massage. There was nobody in that market whatsoever and we had the monopoly on it till about 2002-2003 it became huge. Sometimes we used to have two, three stands at exhibitions with various models of massage chairs and various manufacturers.
0: Right. And how did you how did, you, how did that come about, the massage chair? Did you just, you just thought about it and then you searched for somebody who did I, it? I
1: think how it came is we used to import um, a massage mattress, which we sold for about between 1600 and £2,000. Pounds. It was quite advanced from a company called HWE in California.
0: Mm.
1: And that one you lay on and there were a set of 16 rollers that went up and down your body. And the idea of, of that was actually to stretch, um, get your posture back, relax the muscles mm. and get your body in, in, in its optimum uh, postural position. position. Mm. Massage chairs are very big in Japan, one in two, one in three homes have one. So when I found one from a distributor in Germany, I straight away I uh, said to him, you know, can I buy from you and become your UK distributor? And yeah, so we, we, we so uh, you did that, We you did, started we importing did metal yeah. shares from Germany, you put them on the same website? Uh, we didn't have a website at the time, no, because that was, we started okay, the so industry just in
0: '94. So, so yeah, too too early for the internet, so you're just posting things in... Yellow Pages,
1: and we did we did adverts, but mainly mainly, uh, Damien, this is where it was expensive. We we we, we started doing exhibitions, and we expanded, yeah, we expanded it more and more every year. From approximately, you know, the uh, early nineties, ninety four, up to about two thousand and three, two thousand and four, when I got hit hard. But yeah, that's another story.
0: Yeah. Um, okay, yeah, because the things have changed so much, haven't they? Because that's how we used to do things, as exhibitions, and yeah, I think there are exhibitions still about, but they're, they're not such a kind of essential marketing sales tool as they, as they used to be.
1: No, no. The, the reason for exhibitions uh, was that actually it was much easier for somebody to sit down and try it, and you talk them through it. Yeah, so it's um, the right... So it was the, it's what we call direct sales. Yeah, you know? it was the right fit for that yeah, product. Yeah, but yeah. most 99% of our sales we got, nobody that came on your stand had probably had the intention of buying a massage chair. Yeah. So it was a question of talking them through, letting them try it, having the patience to sit with them, and hopefully after 45 minutes or an hour presentation, You would get the signals if they were going to buy it or not. That's something I taught myself. Uh, And then I started employing people to sell with me. Yeah, that was another probably ten good years.
0: So you then became... So in this period you were a salesman, an importer... Yeah. ...and uh, an entrepreneur again.
1: Yeah, MD of my own company, yeah.
0: Yeah. Yeah. And so all new skills, really.
1: Yes, you were employing I in my, each
0: different thing you do.
1: I suppose I use my people skills. I love people. So, yeah. you know, selling... Uh, I wouldn't say it comes a second nature, but I, I love selling, you know.
0: Yeah. And then, and then what happened after, after the inch-by-inch inch
1: business? Okay, so the inch-by-inch inch business went on for quite a while. And uh, in, in the year 2000, 2001, I met my partner, Sana. At the time, I was um, also in sorry, sir. We're just getting answering a uh, answering
0: machine behind. We're just us. getting a call, probably for a booking on the for a booking, yeah. On the answer message, so you met your partner Senna.
1: Yeah, I met my partner Senna. I was I had become also the Canadian distributor for the UK of a of a massager, which was very successful in the beauty industry, called the Thumper. It was a two-headed mas- machine which actually worked on percussion yeah. and it was uh, developed and designed by, by an American uh, chiropractor. And yeah, so she came and tried that Thumper m- Massager at a beauty exhibition that I was doing mm-hmm. and she's from Damascus, so we, we had a connection going. And she told me, she phoned one day, I was in London, she was in St. Leonard's Hastings, and she said she was quite interested in buying one. And it it was a bit unusual because I I liked her as soon as I saw, I said, well, I'll I'll deliver you a couple of models I have and you can choose which. Mm. It would have been very unusual for me to travel all the way from London to St. Leonard's just to sell them a charger for 170 yeah. pounds, we always used to send it by interlink.
0: Yeah, so you had something else we, Which is DPD now. Something yeah. else
1: in mind. Yeah, yeah, we had a connection automatically. And, and the rest is history, really. We got, we got to know each other. I carried on with my business. She, she was a hairdresser at the time, a mobile hairdresser. And then one day she said to me that she was quite keen maybe to start a falafel business. And I said, okay, I'll, I'll, I'll team up with you, and I'll help you get it off the ground. Yeah. We started a little humble falafel business called Chic Falafel. I called it Chic from the chickpeas, if you like. Yeah. So it was C H I C falafel. A uh, lot of people didn't like the name. I quite liked it, but anyway, that was was neither here nor there. So we bought we bought a little tent, and we used to do the Thursday market at the um, in the town centre every Thursday. Yeah. We also did the seafood festivals and a few festivals here and there. Okay. I carried on with my leisure business, and I, you know, I I would help her with with the falafel business. The falafel was from a very old. Uh, Syrian recipe a family Syrian recipe and people loved it and yeah so she was the inspiration behind the food business in Hastings yeah which is a superb cook is she and yeah. she cooks Syrian food she cooks primarily Syrian food and the reason why she became such a, a good cook and it just shows you what happens to your life uh, gives you a path uh, She lost her mum when her mum was 42, and she was part of a... She was one of the children or siblings of of 10, but she was the eldest on the daughter's side, so she had to cook for 11 people and take over her mum's role at 16. So she had to up her game very quickly, cooking for 11 people on a daily basis. Yeah. I... Crikey, so she was cooking for all of her siblings? All her siblings and her dad, yeah. And her dad. Eventually her dad remarried. Uh, It's quite common in the Middle East when somebody loses his wife, etc. You know, that they meet. When they don't meet somebody, they have maybe an arranged marriage so that at least there's a woman in the house that helps run the house.
0: But Sena was then the, the cook of the house.
1: Yeah. Yeah.
0: And probably the mother figure as well for the mother figure. For a lot of them.
1: But she's, she's a very instinctive cooker. She just has to look at something and she either recreates it or recreates it with a twist, you know. But the falafel is an old recipe from her own childhood. Yeah. Very successful in Hastings. Uh, we do them with chickpeas. Yeah. In Egypt we uh, do them with split fava beans okay i don't know if you i think you tried the combination wrap which had falafel and yeah i halloumi. tried
0: the yeah the combi, the combi wrap, wrap which know. is falafel and halloumi yeah, yeah. with your homemade hummus is it
1: hummus yeah with the hummus we put in it we put lettuce tomatoes tahini again which is we we make it ourselves using the concentrate of tahini yeah uh with the baba Ghanoush, extremely popular very successful rich Uh, Is made using smoked aubergine by actually firing the aubergine and then using it. Yeah. Uh, Yeah. Yeah. Obviously our menu is much bigger now as you know.
0: Yeah. Yeah. And you have specials every day. Every week,
1: sorry. Uh, In the tents, we didn't. To be honest, Damien, we would introduce maybe one or one or two small things. No, we didn't didn't have. It was nothing as as voluminous as now. So you just stuck to the core. Yeah, we stuck to falafel falafel wraps. We start. We stuck to combination wraps, babaganoush dips, etc. But nothing, nothing very big. Because cooking in a tent yeah. is is you must know because uh, you're, you're into doing. food. It's very challenging. Yeah. We had um, we had gas, you know, gas bottle, yeah. a little cooker, a little fryer. Yeah. The elements can really play yeah. havoc with it. Yeah. And some days, as you say, the elements would blow us out altogether.
0: Yeah. Yeah. I had that as well. And so, you, so you started to build a reputation.
1: Yeah, we started to build a reputation, and then we were approached by the Kino Theater in Norman Road, which, as you know, is an art center, cinema, etc. And uh, he had parted company with uh, his chef, which was there. I think his chef was called Nick, from here, say. And he was looking for somebody to rent the space to run it as a restaurant. So I asked Sana whether she was interested and I think she was very much 50-50. Okay. I suppose maybe she's not as spontaneous as me, I don't know, but yeah. But I said, shall we go for it? And then, Anyway, after a lot of chat, we went for it and we, we uh, did a heads of agreement uh, with the keynote. And we run, it, we run it as a restaurant until July 2020. So how many years were you there? Three years. Three years, right. right. From 2017.
0: And that was an evolution of the business again, so... That was
1: an evolution of the business and the food business, but obviously then Sana expanded her cooking. Uh, yeah.
0: So it's quite very, a good, quite a good um, business model, actually, to start in a, in kind of a, I guess they're kind of a gazebo. Kind it was of a gazebo. style f- um, setup, um, doing markets, and then build up your reputation, start doing events. And then you can, and then you went into doing a kind of um, residency, I guess. At yes, at there the was studio.
1: a residency w- uh, in, in in a building which wasn't yours, as, as such.
0: Yeah, yeah, so... Uh, we again, only did
1: Wednesday to Sunday there. The,
0: um, the risk wasn't too high to you because you had the reputation and you didn't have to, you know, necessarily buy your own place, you could just see how it went. So. Yeah, made it makes makes a lot of sense. Yeah,
1: actually. the risk wasn't as big, if you like. Uh, the positive element I saw straight away from far was the fact that the kino had their own clients coming to the cinema, yeah, on a daily basis. And and then they. Uh, and and then apart from the people coming to the cinema, uh, it's also an art gallery. So. Yes. at the end of the day you you had the chances that there was a clientele there, a resident yeah. clientele that's point one point two which was very interesting to me, so a good footfall yeah yeah good footfall and the the other thing which I saw straight away that the space would lend itself to actually have functions and weddings et cetera there yeah, so that attracted me
0: okay, and that as you say it built the business again and then and then what, what happened after that?
1: Well, what, what happened after that, March 2020, as you remember, we, we were told to stay at home, so everything was locked up, including the key, no? and we, we locked up completely. Uh, and this is where we actually, uh, I could say maybe, I, I don't like to use strong words, but this is where maybe we fell out with the people that leased the building from the, the head leaseholder. Is okay, that, yeah. They wanted us they wanted to put restrictions on us how to get back in there, etc. Yeah, it was a very difficult time for everybody, wasn't it? was a very difficult it? time. So this is where I handed the keys back and, you know, I lost a bit of money in rent, which I had paid. Yeah. Um, anyway, that's history. It's not part of uh, what I'd like to put on tape, really. Okay. I don't want to use any strong words.
0: Yeah. So then you, so you left the keynote and then you moved on to onto where we're sitting now, how did that, how yes, did that happen? Yes,
1: we, we, we left the know also because uh, at the time, I had given up my distributorship of, of the massage chairs, but I was working as a consultant with, with a company based in Shropshire, so they were actually importing the Japanese massage chair, I was doing exhibitions for them, so my income literally fell down to zero, both on my own personal level, but also on the food level, so that was a very trying period of time, yeah. where I, I was quite worried, to be honest.
0: Yeah, yeah. Oh wow. yeah. So there was no safety net. There was no safety net whatsoever. No. So, so how did you, how did you cope with so that? So we, we
1: we found we found this shop that we're sitting in now, which is which is now our restaurant. Uh, Strangely enough, we had gone for this shop in 2017, but we never got it. And then uh, we were driving past one day and we noticed that there seemed to be a lot of movement, so I scratched the surface and found out that, yes, they wanted to let it, because the the tenant that was here was going to leave it Mm. and, and go. Uh, and we signed the lease on here on the 19th of June, 2020. Okay. So you've only been going just, just over a year, really? Well, yeah, but uh, bear in mind, it didn't look anything like that. So we took it over in June, 2020. Again, it was myself, uh, a plumber, a carpenter, and a friend of mine called Luke, who's absolutely got superb vision. Yeah. Uh, we, we built it together. We built it in eight weeks and we were up and running in eight weeks. Wow. And it's a
0: beautiful space and just looking around, we've got a lot of uh, photographic prints of, um, I, I presume it's Syria or Lebanon?
1: Yeah, it's all, all the prints that you see here are prints from Damascus, which I bought on the internet, including the one on spices, the one in the soup, uh, the market with the yeah. orange lady there.
0: Yeah, so you can't um, see, but there's a picture of a guy, a trader, with the large sacks of multicolored spices, which, which is obviously what goes into the food as well. And then, yeah, a picture of the, the market the market area in Damascus. And it's, it does really bring it to life, I think.
1: It does. Strangely enough, these bins haven't been here that long. But I, I bought them from the internet, and then you get the rights of actually using them and we used a foam expo- board to actually print them on. The third one, you can see there is very interesting. That's a typical house in old Damascus where- It's beautiful. The, the, they live all round it on the first floor and ground floor, but the middle is left empty. So it's like a nice rectangle and they use it to dine there and sitting there. So it's like a leisure area in Which the middle of quite the house. communal, is it? Communal to the owners of the house, yeah. yeah.
0: Because I do think with a restaurant, it's um, it's a fantastic place, and and it's not just about the food, is it? It's about the space, it's about the service, it's about the story behind the food, it's about you and your wife, Sana, and you know everything that goes with that. And you know when people come here, they come to come to participate in that and almost be transported into that world and. And feel that you know the energy of that story. I don't know if you agree,
1: but that's no. Really I, I agree fully. I agree fully. And uh, we used uh, when when we were at the Kino before. Um, I I called the Liban, Liban, which uh, in French is Liban is the French word for Lebanon, but we had the little at sign and we were Liban at Kino. Yeah. I always saw if we go out of the Kino, I would just drop off the Kino word and use another word. Yeah. And then by consensus, we chose the word Liban coast because of the view. Yeah, and it's stuck, and that's what we call now Liban Coast. Yeah, and it's nice because when you re- search us on Google, it comes up straight away. Yeah, it's
0: very unique, isn't it? I wanted yeah. to ask you what the
1: name meant. Yeah, yeah.
0: So thanks yeah. for explaining that. Yeah. And
1: you're, um, it's going well. You're busy. That's good. Yeah, yeah. We we, we work from Wednesday to Saturday. We're we you know we we're, we're, f- we're fully booked. We've done. Uh, small weddings now uh, we've had quite a few inquiries about small parties etc okay. it's starting the if you like the banqueting side and the venue side is starting to take off slowly now so the next
0: phase of the um, of the business is already already becoming apparent perhaps
1: yes i think so I mean, people like our food we've, we've already done we've already done a couple of weddings we've done uh, a few hen parties yeah yeah, it's it's becoming known. And
0: yeah, it's the whole business. It's what attracted yeah. me to it in the first place, and it's why you're, why you're so popular. So you've done, a, yeah, done an excellent, excellent yeah. job. Yeah, yeah. Um, and, uh, yeah, because I try and... I've tried to uh, get food a few times, and you've just been full. So I, th- I think you we, are super full. We have super been pretty, pretty booked.
1: And, and, and there's a lot of evolution. I mean, Sanat so gets occasionally upset that She developed uh, a recipe for the chicken shawarma, but sometimes the sales, if you look at the pie charts, the sales of the chicken shawarma sometimes surpasses the falafel as a wrap. Yeah. but certainly the falafel is in all our other dishes so in reality no we still sell a lot a lot of falafel. but so, uh,
0: so, so no, it's, it's, it's very personal to
1: her Oh yeah of course yeah, yeah. It, I mean the chicken shawarma is her own recipe again using a brother who was a sharoma master in, who is a sharoma master in, uh, in Syria for 20 odd years yeah so she got the mixed recipe from him.
0: I got that big grin on my face again yeah, yeah you talk about it, it a, the is, master
1: yeah, yeah it is successful you know. yeah so
0: yeah, yeah. well uh, you know well done well, well done you. you and thanks for sharing your story with me well, today That's right um, and uh, yeah to hear about Senna is Senna's involvement as well as a as a a very key figure in this. Unfortunately, she couldn't be here today.
1: No, and the only other thing we do, Damien, I is now we again we've evolved and we bake our own baklava in house. You do, yes. Yeah, so I tried that. Yeah, so yeah. Every, everything is done in house, even the baklava now. Yeah, and I think that is that is something which which
0: I really love is that you make everything yourself.
1: Yeah, I think I think you have to the two the two things we're trying to give with authenticity and actually home cooking so that people really feel that the food they're eating it's as if you, you cooked it yourself in your front uh, in, in your kitchen and, and served it in your front room or in your lounge and had authentic yeah, food.
0: it does, does definitely feel like that and it feels
1: like it's cooked with a lot of
0: love and passion. That's what we try. Yeah, that's what we try. So, Hassan Gemay, uh, a linguist, entrepreneur, um, Egyptian, Italian um, man who now lives in St. Leonard's. Thanks for sharing your story. And you're also an engineer and an amazing, yeah, as I said, an amazing entrepreneur. It's uh, very inspiring to hear about your life and, and everything you've done. And I look forward to seeing what you will do in the future.
1: Yeah, thank you, then. Thank yeah. you. Thanks, Thanks for us.
0: coming. for no coming. I hope you enjoyed this episode of HIP Piz. To find out more about creating a business you love, please visit our website at beyourbusiness.co.uk.